Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Last week before our experiment got cut off, we were talking about some of the things that we liked about Kotlin. And uh, and since then, I've made a list of yeah. things that, because we were trying to remember stuff off the top of our head. Right. We're doing a pretty good job. But um, so now we have a list and we can choose, pick and choose from these things. Nice. Because um, I think like one of the things that we maybe didn't emphasize that much was the syntax simplicity and clarity and how there's a lot less code. And, you know, it's interesting because people have different opinions about code volume and some people go, well, the IDE will write this code for you. So it's okay. But my feeling, or just make the language better. So you don't need all that code. That that's and and also I feel like it's not really about that. It's about like when somebody else is reading the code. Code is read much more than it is written. Yeah. So, um, and I'm hyper aware of that because the code that I'm writing goes into books, and I want I want people to be able to look at it and get the idea without struggling. Yeah, I think that's the goal of modern languages is to allow you to most simply convey what you're trying to do. Whereas programming languages of the past, the code doesn't express very clearly what you're trying to do generally. And so, um, so yeah, I think the expressiveness of Kotlin is, is something where, where the code is a lot more directly related to the actual goal. Well, I would, I would say, expressiveness and you know sensibility to to the reader but also right. safety i yep. think that's the other thing that we're i mean this is what we're trying to achieve with functional programming and the null stuff in kotlin and yeah you know all of that stuff yeah but 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 there are things that it releases you from the tyranny of the java designers like top level functions and not having to put one class per file. Yeah. I mean, what a kind of arbitrary, painful decision. Not even There's sure. definitely a lot of things that you do for the compiler in Java. Yes, there are. Yeah. Um, the type inference, yeah. the, the inability to do a lot of the type inference that you can do in Kotlin. And, um, and then, well, named and default arguments. I know we didn't talk oh, about yeah. that. That's, and that, I think, awesome. well, I don't know. The first place that I was exposed to that was in Python. So it's very possible mm. that they picked it up from Python. But that saves a lot of, you know, a bunch of special cases. And it's much more readable. You can see what it's doing. I've been on just this war path against builder pattern lately. Yeah. So talk about that because I'm not really sure... And Kotlin does have some some pretty strong support for yeah. a, a or at least a, a variant of the builder pattern, yeah. which maybe won't offend you as much. But which what what aspect of it is? I just have run into so many issues where I didn't 
provide the builder the things in the right order, or I forgot something that was required because the constructs of a builder don't convey to you, the builder pattern don't convey to you uh, ordering or required things. And, and so it ends up resulting in just weird behavior that then you have to debug into the builder and see, oh, I was supposed to set this thing before I did this thing because, uh, because it needed it. And all that stuff is not conveyed when you use builder pattern. Whereas constructors with default parameters provide you a lot of the, uh, and, and specifically immutable builders where the mutable builder, the mutability of the builder pattern is, is what's causing all these issues. Whereas if you can just construct objects, immutable objects from constructors, then you don't have to worry about the challenges that arise from the mutability underneath the builder. Well, but I think a lot of the goal of the builder pattern is to have put the flexibility inside of the, inside of the Lambda is so that you can do, I mean, like the string builder, I mean, there's no particular way that you want to build a string, right? Um, You're just, piecing it together in the way that you want to. And then it produces this immutable string at the end. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think a lot cleaner <clears throat> than having a piece of code where you're hammering together a string. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a usage issue. That's, I think that what it points out to me is languages that don't have uh flexibility in constructing immutable objects and that that creates the need for mutable builders mm. and uh and then just things like optional like being able to to express optionality in the type system which kotlin can do and so um i guess i don't know in kotlin i guess you can set a using the question mark you can in a in a constructor parameter say that the default value is null or something, right? Nullable. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then you can you can say you can, it is nullable and and the default is null. Or I let's see. Do you? Ha- yeah, I think you have to provide the type in the uh, argument. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just use type inference right. to design. Yeah. yeah. To, to well, and I and I did check with Svetlana about the. Um, the mapping of um, optional to null um, with the, um, the, Elvis you know, the Elvis and the and the question dot, and she said, yes, they satisfy the same intent, but um, with Kotlin, it's checked at compile time and it's built into the language, and you don't have the overhead of the uh, optional yeah. object. Yeah, so it is there and i'm i'm still getting my head around that like going are we getting the same effect but in general it does seem like it's getting the same effect and um i think as long as it's preventing the null pointer exception i guess it's okay you know yeah it's it's doing the job and it's doing it better than optional is so um yeah, so that's a yeah. that's a plus. I don't think did we talk about no checked exceptions before? I don't remember. That's I... pretty big, I think. You know, not being forced to to handle the checked exceptions. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, that's inappropriate yeah. most of the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, God, checked exceptions. I, I haven't had to deal with them in a long time. But what's funny is that my programming style now for air handling is kind of like checked, checked exceptions, but putting them into the type system, like putting it not uh, putting them into a return value. So it's, it's in. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying, but I don't know if I would say it kind of like, I mean, I guess it's not, I I recoil against anything. This is kind of like checked exceptions. But what's interesting is that it puts it in the hands of the caller. Right to have to deal with which is what the this you know null slash optional approach does with um in kotlin yeah so it's i guess that's been a general movement with with language design is to it it kind of swinging the pendulum back to putting in the responsibility of the caller to deal with yeah yeah i think what we discovered with the java checked exception experiment which I think somebody may have said that it it was reproduced in like one other language somewhere, but as far as I mean, I, I think effectively nobody has repeated that mistake. <clears throat> Hopefully, in a few years down the road, we can say that about just exceptions in general. <laughs> that exceptions were a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Um, well. Or that there are things that you only use. I mean, it's almost like the way Go had the um, panic. Or is, it's a yeah. panic. Now they're talking about adding a few, you know, more things. But I think if we think of it in terms of isolating it to some special cases, I think the, you know, because there's certain situations where you go, I, I have no idea what to do here. I well, it's tr- like out of memory. Like, why is that an exception? Just... Crash the process. Just like, cause you can't recover from an out of memory exception. Well, I guess the only thing that you could hope to do in that case is say that maybe some cleanup. There's a, well, no, I don't think you can recover from it. I mean, I think maybe that's, that's the thing. Exceptions, the way I describe them is their goal is recovery. Right. So if you can't recover. Yeah. Like stack overflow, like, you're just you done, can, right? You, you're yeah, but you might be able to report. You might be able to capture some information about why that happened and report it as an error, so that you know it could be debugged. But but if it's like, well, I called out, I did, I tried to do some I/O, nothing came back, or you know, it told me no, okay. or something like that. It's like, well, computer says no. The computer says no, and is. I mean, there's there's kind of a very high level way to recover from that, which is to say, well, I guess you can try again for a while, and yeah. So, it, but even that should that well, yeah, should that even be an exception because you're doing something on the network and you expect that uncertainty, right? So, or even on the file system, on the right, the file yeah. system could fail, yeah. You know? And so it puts it puts the onus on the caller to have to determine what is my recovery or my failure path mm-hmm. here. Yeah, so I think Go's approach might be, uh, you know, a better way of thinking about it. Saying, yeah, there's a few cases here where you don't know what to do, and throwing up your hands and going, somebody else has got to deal with this at a higher level. That's one thing. But when you're making a function call. That should 
you shouldn't have this very circuitous thing that comes around and says, oh, I've thrown an exception, you have to catch it. And you go, oh, I called this function and it didn't give me the expect. Yeah, that's probably not the right model for that. Yeah. You know, maybe the real problem I suspect was that they said, we have the one solution and it wasn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and what what's nice about exceptions, not uh, unchecked exceptions in particular, is that you can ignore them. Whereas when you get into the type of programming that I'm doing now, where where the the possible errors are put into a monad monad return type, you you really can't ignore, or it feels really dirty to ignore the the possibility that something went wrong. Whereas in unchecked exceptions, you can write a lot of code and just assume that you're always going to be on the happy path. And that makes the code more, right. more concise, more, you know, the, uh, you know, if you, if you just want to assume the happy path, then your code can be pretty clean. That was my initial assumption when I first encountered this years and years ago at the university of Washington, when we were doing, you know, research into C++ and libraries and things like that, as I always just said, well, nothing will go wrong. And I, and I think of that and I go, I bet a lot of computer science graduates yeah. have that yeah. attitude is that, no, I'm protected. You know, the, well, a lot of people, uh, I think using Java will say, well, you know, the compiler has my back and hmm, no, it doesn't. Yeah. We just don't. Yeah, I think we had initially we didn't really think that much about errors, and it's just been a slow process of of kind of getting more and more attuned to the idea that bad stuff is going to happen, and you got to be yeah. I mean, shouldn't attention. we shouldn't we really be encouraging all developers to think about the the possible error paths and how they want to deal with those rather than the unchecked exception method, which is just, you can ignore it. Cause I think like ultimately that creates such bad quality of code is the, the, the mentality that you can ignore it. And then all of a sudden something goes wrong and you ignored it. And then, and then things don't work as expected. Um, which I think just creates like I, I run into so many bugs in every piece of software that I interact with every day and it drives me crazy. And I think that a lot of it is just that we haven't taught people the right practices for how to deal with, with possible errors and our programming languages haven't steered people in the right direction of you really should think about the fact that this can fail and what you want to do in that case. Yeah. It's, um, it's a cultural problem, right? It's a, well, it's a cultural problem, but also I think it comes from our educational institutions, which, you know, maybe it sidled over from math and with math, you can create, you know, proofs and make sure everything is correct. And, and there were attempts for a while to figure out a programming language that could be proved correct, you know, where you could have a provably correct yeah. program. And there's probably people still working on that, but yeah, um, there's a few languages that are still exploring that. But I think I've gotten really close to that with functional programming, in at least the way that I that I do it, is that that when I call a function, I am 
pretty close to guaranteed that what I'm going to get out of that function is what the type system tells me are the options. Whereas if you call a function in Java, you could get the thing that you expect, you could get an exception, or you could get null, right? And and so like thinkingness Kotlin at least takes one of those things out of the equation so that you can expect that you're that you only get null if it's if you've told it that the that it's possibly nullable. Um, but in but exceptions are still there and used in Kotlin. So you still have the exception route. Whereas for me, my type signature expresses exactly what my potential outputs of calling any given function are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's things in university programs that are not taught. And I think, you know, the fact that stuff can go wrong is not, you know, there should be at least one class in what happens when things go wrong, Yeah, you know, and that things will go wrong, but I don't think there are. I I was just speaking to one of the um, programmers in the, you know, the startup, the, the, um, Tribeworks consulting firm that, that we started up and they're fresh out of school. And, um, well, I mean, a year and two years out of school. So, um, but, uh, uh, one of them was saying, so what's this thing about namespaces? I'm not clear about namespaces. And it's always, you know, it's, not, I don't hold that against them at all. Cause it's the kind of thing that, oh, they didn't teach you this in school. And there's a lot of things like that, which are really pretty fundamental concepts that they should have at their fingertips. I think in general, schools teach mostly happy path programming. Yes, I think so. And and so I think you're right to identify that there's a cultural problem, but part of connected to that cultural problem is the educational methods. But yeah, well, and path possibly coming from the math world where, uh, you know, you prove it and then you can just move on and not think about, uh, you, I mean, you don't think about calling a function and having it fail <laughs> in math. Yeah. No, yeah. no. I mean, the function always yeah. works. And so that's, but, um, yeah. And, and I also, I suppose maybe it seems a little disheartening. If you go, okay, so you're going to write this program and you say, hello world. Now let's talk about how that might fail. And it's like, what? You know, yeah. it's it maybe a little overwhelming at first. And so, so it's like, well, let's just go along the happy path. Yeah. And then maybe we never get around to some of these really important details, like how to use GitHub. Yeah. Well, distributed version control, I think would be uh, an extremely useful thing to be teaching in school yeah. and eventually they will yeah if universities still exist <laughs> uh and you don't just get it off of um youtube it's it's funny you mentioned the the hello world example because in the functional programming that i've been doing lately hello world actually can fail and you have to think about the ways that hello world could fail so interestingly when you call system.out.println in Java, Colin, on the JVM, whatever, that can throw an IO exception because if it can't actually write to standard out. And I think that there's, 
like maybe you're on a machine and there's no console or something. Exactly. Okay. Right? Okay. And so, hmm. so what's interesting in the Scala Zia stuff that I've been doing, when you want to print out to the console, the, the, the return type of that actually includes the possibility that it could have produced an IO exception while trying mm -hmm. to write to the console. So it's, um, but it's, it is really weird to think that hello world could fail. And, and what you do about that. But how different would that be for people as they're learning programming to, to, to be taught to think about the possible air conditions? But, you know, even I can do, if like I that. do hello, I can, I can write hello world on this device, you know, and it has. That's an Adafruit. That that's an Adafruit, you know, and, you know, you can run Python on it really easily and I can write hello world to it. And yeah, where, where's that going? I don't know. It, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't get to the console. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh. So Kotlin, um, there's a, a ton of, of syntax things. I think you've said before that Kotlin has taken a lot of experiments from other languages and taken the things that have kind of improved to be good improvements and pull them into the language. Real like string successes. Templates. Like I string think. templates are just like so obvious and it's so great that Kotlin has this. And that they get to like, cause Python has been mutating its string output for you know, decades. You know, they, somebody comes up with a better version and everybody goes, oh my gosh, that's so much better. We have to put that in the language, but then you still have all the others there. But, but we're now able to see the, um, you know, Kotlin's able to use something that after all of that evolution has happened. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that's just, it's really basic, and it's been quite bothersome in the past. Yeah. And uh, so now things like that are... Yeah. There's uh, just a, there's a ton of things like that, like uh, ranges you have mm -hmm. on your list, data classes, of course, like mm -hmm. um, no new... Uh, the expressionality of if is is nice. The fact that it's an expression rather than uh, a statement. statement. Yeah. yeah. So you can you get a return value from it, so you don't have to have a ternary. Expression. But one of the I don't think they took it far enough with Kotlin. I mean, maybe yeah. they have to cater to Java developers being more statement oriented. But I actually I now having used Scala, where everything is an expression, I can't go back to to language it's well, i guess i do write a lot of kotlin so i can't go back to it but it feels but really you notice awkward. it because you're going oh wait is this a statement yeah or an expression yeah because yeah once you get used to the idea of well it's gonna produce something yeah and it does yeah i mean if i was designing a language from scratch i would say definitely everything is an expression yeah yeah, yeah. So I think it is a, having if as an expression is is awesome, and yeah. I use that all the time in right. Kotlin. Yeah. Right, and it does. I mean, the parsing the ternary operator is never. It's like something I have to stop and think about. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the if expression, even though it's longer than the ternary operator, yeah. it's easier to I think read. You can so. do it in Kotlin all on a single line. You can, yeah. you can, you can write you an if statement. You, yeah. You don't have to have the, yeah. the braces, yeah, so which I, there's just no reason for the ternary operator. No, no. So they don't have it. Um, oh, they don't. In no, Kotlin, no, there's no ternary term. operator okay. in Kotlin. Cause you're supposed to use the if expression. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I have, I mean, I, I go back and forth with, um, with Svetlana, my co-author about 
you know, there's a lot of these things that don't require curly braces. Mm -hmm. And so my thing is, well, if, if I have a one line, you know, if it's an if or something like that, and I have a one line, then, well, I, I tend not to put them in for a single line and I go back and Python developer. It's part, partly is that it's partly, it's just, well, if you don't require me to have curly braces, yeah, I'm not going to put them in. So the one place where I found where I put them in even when they're not needed is because sometimes when I'm writing code and debugging, I'll in one of my blocks, I want to like throw a printlin in, and then all of a sudden I have to switch to the parentheses, the um, curly, braces. curly braces, and it just gets too awkward. So a lot of times I just put them in because I might have to like do a printlin. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, I mean, I'm. I guess what I would have liked is them to have made it a language requirement, but the one place where that would be um, detrimental is that one line, the one liner if statement. Yeah. But still I would have, you know, so that's part of my um, stubbornness about that is going, well, you should have made it a requirement rather than saying it's optional. I, but that is one really nice thing about Kotlin is that there are, there are generally very few ways to do the same thing. Whereas in Scala, there's like a hundred ways to do the same mm-hmm. thing for every given thing. And it, and it makes the language a lot harder to learn because you'll look at a piece of code and be like, I, that's not the way that I learned how to do this. So I don't understand. Yep. So there's that was a lot my of experience. overhead. Mm-hmm. Whereas thankfully I think Colin did a good job of generally providing very few ways to do the same thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think that was definitely a, one of their goals. Yeah. So um, we we were talking about server side Kotlin stuff yes. uh, a little bit uh, in the section that got cut off before we got episode. cut off. Yeah, yeah. So we should probably come back to that. And yeah, it's something that I've been doing a lot of is server side Kotlin mm-hmm. uh, and using all the different oh you've options tr- for try for frameworks. Yeah, yeah. So oh, so what have you tried? Um, so the one that I've done the most with is actually gRPC Kotlin because I'm Ooh. on the team that's been working on that. And that's that's cool and interesting and takes care of a lot of the serialization. You're on the gRPC team? The gRPC the Kotlin team. gRPC Kotlin team. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so that's cool and, and takes care of a lot of the, the serialization stuff that you normally have to be more explicit mm. about. Um, so I think I think it's a great option, and it's super cases. efficient, right? Yeah, it uses like HTTP two and protobufs mm-hmm. and, and stuff. So, but um, but I I've been doing traditional server side development for so long. I've done I've done more work with or I've used the traditional frameworks more, and then some of the modern kind of traditional style frameworks. So Spring Boot now has great Kotlin support, mm-hmm. and I've used that in a number of places. And then there's a newer framework called Micronaut, which, mm-hmm. is, which has great support for Kotlin. Uh, and then Corcus has okay support for Kotlin. Uh, they don't support like coroutines yet, which is a bummer. At least last I, I saw. And Micronaut does? or Micronaut does. Yeah. Oh, and Spring Kotlin does. coroutines? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 All built on reactive IO mm. stuff. So it's, it's great. Um, and then I've used KTOR, which is the JetBrains uh, HTTP, both client and server library. How's that? It's good. It's it's definitely more Kotlin idiomatic because it's only Kotlin, whereas the other ones support Java and Kotlin. 
and Micronaut Sports Groovy as well. Maybe mm-hmm. Spring Sports Groovy. I don't know. But um, but so Ktor is nice because they get, they use more of the the Kotlinisms for for constructing an application and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there's a lot of benefits to all of them. I think the one that I have have enjoyed using the most is actually Micronaut. Really? Yeah. The, the way that they do their dependency injection and some of that stuff, just it, it's, it's nice and clean. And, uh, there's this cool thing where you can say, um, you can, you can through annotations kind of build your tree of injection, your, of dependency injection. So it makes it easy to do things where you want to switch between one provider and another provider given like your environment. So in my case, I'm running on Google Cloud for production, but then locally I'm not, you know, running on Google Cloud. So I have a different provider for like my database or whatever it may be, or maybe it's my database configuration or whatever. And so Micronaut makes it super easy to like say, okay, if my environment is Google Cloud, use this, inject this thing. And if it's running locally, inject this thing. And so the the like wiring of the tree of dependencies with Micronaut, I found to be really nice. So how do you, I mean, you're looking at all these different uh, frameworks and I'm asking this because we're, we're creating kind of a prototype using um, Django on the back end, yeah. which is, you know, uh, and they've done a lot of work to, um, you know, for performance and things like that on, on Django. So, but, but how do you like evaluate one framework against another? Like what, there's I, so many variables. It yeah. Seems like. Yeah. And, and, as usual, the answer is it depends on what you're doing. And mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the applications I build are kind of full stack applications. They're not just the REST API. So it would probably be a different am- answer if you're just doing kind of a backend service versus a full stack application. Luckily, I'm in my job able to explore lots of different things and try lots of different things. It and, kind of uh, is your job. It kind of is my job. So I have the ability to do all that experimentation, whereas obviously not everyone has that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, so yeah, it depends if you're a spring developer, like you've been doing Java spring, then obviously like spring boot with Kotlin is, is an easy step forward. Uh, whereas if you're kind of coming into Kotlin new to server-side programming, maybe you've been, been doing Android programming, then maybe like KTOR is going to be a great choice. Um, if you're building uh, just purely like backend service stuff, then maybe gRPC would be a good choice. And so, so yeah, I think, I think it does depend on kind of your background and what you're using it for and all that. But. Mm. So no easy, no, e- yeah, no, no easy, easy choice. We related to this last time we were talking about Kotlin native, right? And uh, and I was saying that that GraalVM I think has taken away some of the need for Kotlin native. And you asked, what is GraalVM? So let's talk about GraalVM. Yeah. <laughs> so GraalVM is a new VM from Oracle that has a mode that allows ahead of time compilation of a JVM application into a native executable. Mm-hmm. And so what, what it does is it'll take your jar files of your application and then, and then turn those into ahead of time, compile them into a native executable. And so this 
I think accomplishes a lot of the same things as Kotlin native, where it's optimized for a specific system. It's uh, it does the ahead of time compilation, so it starts up faster. Uh, it uh, uses less memory, all those kinds of things. And so, so I haven't been as interested in Kotlin native and exploring that because with Kotlin native, you have to toss out a lot of the JVM stuff that, that I'm used to programming against. Whereas with you mean the libraries and things, the libraries. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why is that? Do you think, why do you have to toss out some of that stuff? Because if you want to use oh. like Java collections, you have to be on the JVM. <laughs> okay. Okay. So whereas GraalVM just brings it all in. What it sounds like that would make a pretty, not that that's as important anymore, but a pretty big executable. It's surprisingly small. Really? Yeah. Because it's, it, it actually figures out the execution paths. And so it's, it's optimized. It's not taking every single piece of bytecode that's in every jar file that you have linked against and putting that all into the executable. It doesn't do that as far as I can tell. It actually like analyzes what the execution paths are and and then based on those execution paths creates the native image the native executable. So um, so yeah it's it they're actually they're not they're they're not as small as I think other languages like Go can produce some some pretty generally pretty small. Yeah, but it's a pretty amazing compromise. So, do you suppose that's coming from like one of the versions of Java? They had the the breaking up of the I, f- I forget oh, the module modularization. Yeah, yeah, the module yeah. system. Is that no? Why? I, I think it's different from oh, my okay. understanding, which could be totally wrong, and hopefully people correct me. But my understanding is that it actually analyzes the execution path of the program and only only ahead of time compiles into the native executable those things. And so, so even if you have stuff in your module path or your class path or whatever, if they don't mm-hmm. get used, they don't go into that native executable. So, mm-hmm. so it didn't need the module system in order for as far for as it to I work. know. That's a Pretty... Well, and there's GraalVM for Java 8, which is before the modules. Oh, stuff, yeah, so. that's true. Yeah, okay. So that's a pretty... Who, who's behind that? Is that another Brian Getz genius piece? I'm sure piece? that Brian is involved, but yeah. there there is a a very large team at Oracle that is that is wow. working on this right now. Wow. So they've, they've invested a ton into it, and it's engineering feats that are remarkable, for sure. It, they are. Um, now... <sighs> I mean, pardon me, I, I've come not to trust Oracle very much. Is this something that they're going to pull the carpet out from under? Is, there has been some it? concerns about the licensing of mm-hmm. GraalVM. They do have a commercial license that you can buy, which I think unlocks like performance enhancements and stuff. So I think mm. they do have a model to make money off of this, which is, which is good. Yeah, I don't but mind that. It's yeah. just that you know sometimes historically they've some people have been concerned about the license of yeah. GraalVM but mm-hmm. I haven't looked into it so one of the really interesting uses for GraalVM is for server side stuff there's serverless which one of the big the big thing that serverless gives you is the ability to match the demand of on your your service your application with what you actually pay for and the only real way to do that is to turn things off when they're not being used. And to 
so then you have to spin things up when demand comes in. That's the whole like serverless model is is all on demand provided, but but not keeping stuff running when it's not needed. So the downside to that model, that operational model, is that if something takes a long time to start up, then you your potentially your users are just sitting there waiting. You know, it's a mm-hmm. weird experience if you like add something to your shopping cart and it doesn't seem to respond. And so uh, so this is called a cold start and cold starts are a lot bigger problem on the JVM than they are with Python and node and uh, go and those sorts of things, hmm. just because the usual spin up time to start the, start the VM, start the, you got to warm it up. You got to, you got to check gym. the oil and wash the windows. Right. I mean, the whole JVM was optimized around long running applications right. that would jit over time and get faster and faster right, and right, faster. Right. And in the serverless model, that just doesn't fit very well. Mm-hmm. And so GraalVM with serverless has actually been something that's catching on where mm-hmm. then you get the ahead of time compilation, you get the fast startup, you get lower memory usage. And so so that's a big part of what I've been exploring is how to do GraalVM for serverless for JVM-based applications. So was that, do you think that was their their initial target? It was, was for serverless stuff to speed I, that up? I feel like they got started before serverless was a thing, but mm. but maybe not. Maybe so. AWS Lambda was one of the first kind of serverless environments, and maybe that's what ultimately kind of sparked the idea for GraalVM. I'm mm. not totally sure, but mm. um, or maybe it was what's it called simultaneous invention or something where where just people realized sure. that there were use cases where like calculus, <laughs> right? Yeah. Newton and Leibniz <laughs> getting a, the idea at the yeah, same light time. Light bulbs yeah. too, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I don't know all the history of, of GraalVM, but it's, it's been, it's been interesting and I have played with it with Kotlin mm-hmm. and had pretty good results. One of the challenges of GraalVM is that it, when you use reflection, you have to tell the ahead of time compiler about you, where you're using reflection, because obviously like if it's analyzing all the execution paths, as soon as you use reflection, it can no longer... All bets are off. Yeah, exactly. And so you have to tell GraalVM about where you're using reflection. And in traditional Java applications, it can be really hard to figure out all the places where you use reflection because it gets used in so many places. Mm. And so uh, so the some of the frameworks uh, do a really good job of helping you address that particular issue and using... So like Micronaut doesn't use reflection. I right. Think. And, yes. and specifically to work well with GraalVM. And I think there's probably, oh. some, even outside of GraalVM, there's some other benefits to doing that as well. I but I think that they actually use the Kotlin annotation processor as their way of doing annotation processing without reflection, whereas Spring Boot uses reflection for mm. its annotation stuff. So. Mm. so have you used GraalVM to just create like standalone command line apps? I tried and I ran into challenges with that. Uh-huh. There is a there is a tool that is well set up to do this called Pico CLI, and it has a GraalVM like mode. Uh, and so so people are doing this, and I think that it's it's interesting. One of the downsides is that the executables do tend to be larger than if you'd create them with C or C++ or even Go or Rust. But these days, uh, it's not as big of an issue. Yeah, and then. GraalVM's targeting 
different platforms is kind of painful today. Mm. So if you want to create a Windows executable, Linux executable, and Mac executable with GraalVM, it's a little painful. Mm. And so, um, so I think people are doing this, but it's not something that has gotten broad adoption yet. Mm. Yeah, the cross-platform thing has always just been a headache. Always. Uh, yeah, so server-side Kotlin, I've been enjoying it, and there's a lot of, of great things out there for doing it. It's definitely mm-hmm. catching on a lot more. And um, so be and with, like, coroutines, it, it just fits so well with the ser- server-side programming model. So, hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, the server-side stuff. Um what else? What else do we like about Kotlin or not like about Kotlin? <sighs> Let's see. What? Well, oh, so now I I'm checking with Svetlana about this, but um, uh, Bill just explained to me about. I think this is in Scala three, and it's called um, type unions. Okay. Do yeah, you, ADT is uh, uh, algebraic data types. Well, this was basically what it does is it allows you to say, um, well, the way I categorized it was as a constrained any. So instead of just saying any and then inside having, um, you know, um, a when and matching against all the types and then having a default. Yeah. Um, what a type union would do if it existed in Kotlin is it would say, okay, I'm going to have, it could be uh, a dog or a robot or a person. Those are the only three types you can pass, but it could be, and they're all disjointed. They're not part of the same hierarchy. And then inside your when you would say, okay, if it's a dog, if it's a person, it's a robot and you don't have to have a default. And then it constrains how you use it. You know, when you call it, the compiler will say only this. And once I understood it, I said, oh, that sounds like a feature that Kotlin would want to have. I mean, it just, it's straightforward. um, Yeah. So this is algebraic data types. Oh, that's what they call. Well, see, that's. And there's, there's two, there's, as far as I know, two different way, two different types of algebraic data types. There's product types and some types. Mm-hmm. And I always get them. I, I, it's so hard to remember the terminology and which one is which, but I think just going off of the top of my head, product type is like a data class or a, or a case class in Scala where it's using the and operator product with and. And so if you have, if you want to construct a class that is has a string and an int and a whatever, right? That's like an and operation. The the data class matches that construct well, and then uh, and then there's the the sum type, which is what you were just describing, where you want to use the logical or in type construction, so a dog or a bird or whatever, and where. Where ADTs really shine is in pattern matching, mm-hmm. and so so you it was nice that you you pointed out that because that's where that's where the usage of ADTs is just awesome because then you can pattern match on these the the um, the sum types and it's it just is really clean and and you don't have to have the typical way to do sum types is with a uh, in Scala it's a sealed trait. Um, Kotlin has something similar for it has sealed today. classes. Yeah, and and where you say these are the possible, um, these are the possible uh, 
types that that are that are that type or express that that particular type mm-hmm. and then you can pattern match on those and i i think that kotlin's pattern matching will tell you when you haven't done an exhaustive pattern match oh yes okay so 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 that is using some that is a a way to do some types it just is more uh overhead because you have to create that sealed class whereas with 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 uh like true adts you can just ad hoc chain together classes with with like an or right well because the sealed class is like a single hierarchy that's right whereas what we're talking about with with these type unions is completely disjoint types that you can say here are the different things that this function can work on yeah and they can have nothing at all in common yeah and but it constrains you you could can you could create that with a sealed class too uh well the it just is more it requires each a a sealed class has to have subclasses yeah that so so they're in that i mean i guess i see what you mean but it's yeah it's much more awkward and less yes well it's not and it's not ad hoc like yeah like that's right that's right the the some types in scala 3 you you don't have to create that kind of wrapper class Mm -hmm. around it you can just say uh dog or bird or whatever and and it will i'm guessing underneath the covers it creates the sealed trait that those that all then inherit from or something it does it It creates a common class somewhat yeah i mean but we don't need to look at that exactly we just go okay here are the possible types that i can accept with my quote-unquote any and then in my when expression or my yeah. my my uh, pattern match, uh, I know I've got them all, and I also know you know where where is an unconstrained any. It's just like well, you could you could call that. Well, you always have the, to have the default match. You right? have to have the or default match, and the compiler isn't going to check to see whether you're passing it the right thing. It's right. just going well, any yeah. every that that means any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's runtime, whereas this right. this does it at compile time. Yeah. yeah. So so ADT is. Um, are awesome mm-hmm. and and it's too bad that Kotlin doesn't yet have the like like real syntax for some types. Yeah, but I could totally see them putting that in. Yeah. That's the kind of thing, and that's why I'm asking. I haven't I haven't heard back about it, but uh, yeah, it seems like that would be a good thing. Yeah, but the pattern matching in Kotlin is is good. It's um it's not quite as powerful as no. Scala's, but but it's it, it's also simpler to understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think the pattern matching that's going to go into Python um, three ten is more closer to Scala's. Yeah. It's you know it may be just picking up everything from Scala, so yeah. it will have uh, more power and possibly complexity as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coroutines. We should talk about coroutines. I think that was in our section that got cut off last time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, my, my, I like coroutines, mm-hmm. but I do find that after having done more functional programming, uh, stuff, concurrent programming, um, async programming with, with Scala, that coroutines are a little lacking to me in, in like air handling, like it's still using exceptions and the code gets messy when you have to think about the possible ways that a coroutine can fail and, and that kind of stuff. I, I feel like I've read something to the effect that that's a 
a significant area of interest. And maybe even in, in uh, 1.4, there's been some improvements yeah. in um, error, dealing with errors in coroutines. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it gets better, but, but it, Coroutines definitely make async programming a lot more accessible to Java developers. Whereas if you want to do that stuff in Java, it is, it is messy. It is painful. I don't even know where to start now. I mean, you know, threads are basically a dead end. You know, they, they uh, deprecated so many, you know, basically if you look at threads, it was like, nope, this was a total mistake. Java threads. Uh, are, well, they're, they're now, Switching to like a fiber model, right. Right. <laughs> a green thread model, right? Um, Which is a, basically a coroutine, yeah. Approach, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think they've the in. What's hard, I think, with with all kind of async stuff, is that that there's an assumption that if you if you get the right primitives for it, then then you can build you know, everything that you might need using on that one that, model, using that one. Well, model. that's kind of the go, um, way of thinking. Right. It's like yeah. we have this one, you have go routines. Yeah. And I mean, if they're going to work, that's going to be great because it's so straightforward. You know, yeah. you could teach people go and have them using go routines by the end of the week. Yeah. And but then awesome. you, but then what often happens is that you have some requirement that doesn't fit that foundational model, and then what do you do? Like then you, it's just concurrency in general. It's it's a collection. It's a basket of of strategies to make your program run faster. And what problem you're trying to solve depends on what strategies you should use. Yeah. And you might not get the right one the first time you try it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think at least we're at to the point where where people feel that fibers the fiber model is the best foundational model that we've found, and that and it doesn't that most have things can be built on top of that impact. I mean, like that was the thing with the Java threads is, you know, you could have maybe seven hundred of them before you ran out of memory because everyone was had this huge impact yeah. on resources, whereas. Whereas uh, fibers and coroutines and how, you know what are the various different names for them are so lightweight that you could just have you know yeah. relatively massive amounts before you have to start thinking about that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's I think that's really important because it affects how you think about programming. If you go, oh, I I can't, you know. I, I can't use too many threads. I have to be thinking about that. Whereas if you can just go, yep, just if you want a fiber or coroutine or whatever for every object out there, that's fine. Yeah. You can deal with that. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, if you're creating a game, wouldn't you want to have every element <laughs> in your game have its own coroutine? You know, probably would. Except for the UI, because then you're single well, threaded. Yes. Then you, but then you have <laughs> a different constraint. Back to that shared yep. mutable state. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You have that constraint. I, I don't um, know if there's any way to solve that problem. Well, with Pony Lang says that the foundational model for concurrency is actors. And mm -hmm. um, I don't, I haven't seen Pony Lang catching on much. So, so I wonder if, if, you know, at some point they'll kind of recognize that maybe that's not the right <laughs> foundational. Well, I guess maybe it's not whether it's the right foundational thing. It's just whether it solves every problem. Right. Yeah. And um, 
I mean, like, again, Go trying to solve every problem with Go routines. Not I, I don't think entirely, but, you know, because they have, they have some other things. But in order to simplify it, they have to say, well, we're going to solve this relatively large subset of, of problems, but also acknowledge that there are other things that we can't solve with this model. Yeah. I think that's what you always have to do with coroutines. Yeah. I mean, with uh, concurrency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yes, I think, you know, in general, coroutines are good. I I definitely miss the monadic like way of dealing with with async stuff um, when I'm in Kotlin, just because it, it gets tricky to do like composition and uh, things like retries and how do I like fan out a bunch of stuff and then, and then pull it all back together. But if one thing fails, what do I want to do? Do I want to cancel all the in-flight ones? Like there's like, I think like you're saying the coroutines model is, is good for a lot of use cases, but then there's a point of complexity where, where you need something more powerful. And, and that's where the monadic, stuff for me has made so a big difference. hasn't somebody been, I thought I had come across one or two people working on like some kind of monad library for Kotlin. Yes. I, so arrow is the right. functional programming library for Kotlin and it's great. And it adds a lot of the stuff that I have been doing in Scala into Kotlin. Um, so yeah, I think that you definitely can get a lot of that in Kotlin with arrow. Uh, so it just is, if we're talking about coroutines specifically, I, that's, there that's where i find lackings but you can certainly add that in mm. with arrow are there i mean <clears throat> i i think i heard that there were some limitations of kotlin that prevents full easy monads is that true or it, like is there a, is there well, a... so they don't have like the do notation like the four the four uh comprehension that scala has for monads so with with uh Haskell has, I think those are the ones that created like the do notation. And then in Scala, it's a, it's a four comprehension, but this allows you to deal with monad monads in a imperative looking way. Mm. And it, it definitely makes the syntax of monads a lot, uh, a lot more, a lot more expressive. Because then you're like normally with monads you do like dot flat map dot flat map dot flat map dot map and it nest nest deeper and deeper and deeper. Whereas with with like the do notation, uh, it it just looks like an imperative statement. But then it's doing that flat map flat map flat map map underneath the covers. You might have to show me that offline because there may be a way to solve that. Uh, so I think that Arrow did come up with some like compiler plugin for Kotlin oh. that does give you some of that syntax niceness dealing with monads mm -hmm. in Arrow. Um, I, I looked at it a long time ago and can't remember exactly how that all worked. But at some point, we may need to do a, a session on introducing monad to attempt once again to introduce monads if we can the monad podcast the monad podcast yeah exactly yeah because there's you know we're already using the m word and have not introduced it's, the idea i know it's hard i can't it, avoid saying the m word it's it's so integral to your your view of the world now it is 
it is my view of the world. It's it's and, all monads, and I'm monads all the way down. I'm slowly getting there. I mean, I'm I'm just chipping away at it, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. So, which would make it a good podcast because I'm the ignorant one <laughs> who would be saying, "Wait, what? How do you explain that?" So, well, so I- uh, another piece of Scala that I miss when I'm in Kotlin is uh, type classes. And mm-hmm. uh, I've found for me, like any, a, lot, a lot of the programs I use are doing serialization mm-hmm. and serialization is, is just a great place to apply type classes because you need something that knows how to take a thing and turn it into, let's say, JSON. You need you need these like and you can't just use a pattern of, match of converters. You can, but where it gets tricky uh, is so or the chain of responsibility pattern. Maybe that's what type classes do for you. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. explain the chain of responsibility. Well, pattern. it's basically um, there's a whole bunch. The, the way I describe it as it's a list of strategies and you just go down the list trying things until you find one that works oh yeah what's hard is that in kotlin you have to you have to explicitly create the chain mm-hmm. whereas with type classes languages with type classes the compiler does the match the compiler the compiler finds the thing that it needs mm-hmm. and so you don't have to explicitly create the chain mm-hmm. and and uh the what what Colin and it's not does, treating it as a chain. It's just saying there's these things out here and I'll find one that matches. Right. Right. Well, and you, you have to import. It has to be in an import. Well, yeah, it has to be but, in namespace. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you have to tell the compiler like where to go looking. What the possibilities are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. So, so in Kotlin, a lot of the serialization stuff that I've seen is still using reflection because that is the way in Java to find the chain of responsibility mm-hmm. dynamically. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I, I prefer the explicitness of type classes to say, here is the chain and, but not have to actually pass it and construct it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I miss, I miss type classes, but I think they could add them to the language. Yeah. yeah I was, that was going to be my next question. Rust has you, them. Do, is there any constraint that would prevent type classes from being added? I think what Scala did was they, they used implicit, which gets it used like five different ways. Yeah. And so it becomes the implicit becomes this really complicated thing. But in Scala 3, they've actually taken the the role of implicit and broken it out into the different places where implicits get used, the different... Um, and they give it different keywords or something? Yeah, different uh, syntax for the different... I w- that was going to be my suggestion, is stop overloading a keyword to use for different things. Yeah. I, it confusing. There, there, was, there is a universal idea to it, as far as I understand, to mm-hmm. implicit in the different ways that it's used in Scala. Like it wasn't just arbitrarily no. picking the keyword, um, but but it was a, a concept that I never fully understood. Whereas I think Kotlin, I think ha- now having seen what Rust and Scala 3 are doing, I think they could add something like almost specifically for type classes, which is what Scala 3 did is mm-hmm. there they, they have now like real support for type classes and so you don't do type classes through implicits you actually just do type classes is it what is there a keyword for it or something 
Uh, I don't remember, but yeah, there is specific syntax. There's something. There's, so when you're when you're looking at it, you're not like saying, "Oh, implicit." I wonder if right. they're using it for type classes here. It's just like, no, that's what it, that's yes, what it is. Exactly. There is specific okay. syntax for type classes, and okay. and Rust is the same way, as far as I I can tell. Nice. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening.